Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. In a world where getting from A to B is dominated by cars, planes, and trains, we all walk far less than people used to. 10,000 steps a day is an aspirational target for many, myself included. But for Craig Mod, my guest on today's episode, that's just a stroll before lunch. Craig has spent large chunks of the past several years walking across Japan, completing months-long journeys along the country's historical walking routes like the Tokaido, the Nakasendo and the Kumanokoro. As he goes, he documents his experiences, sharing essays and photographs through his member-supported newsletters and his books, Koya Bound and Kisa by Kisa. Walking is everything, he says, and if you've got the time and the inclination to do it, it is the best way to come to know the country, from beautifully preserved shrines and forests to the messier parts of suburban reality, pachinko parlors and all. Craig Mott, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. You spend a lot of time walking. I think it's fair to say far, far more than most people. You've walked the old Edo roads like the Tokaido and the Nakasendo. Some of these are 1,000 plus kilometer walks. When did walking become your chosen method for exploring Japan? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's an interesting way to do it. I think if I had known about the historical paths earlier, I would have started walking earlier. When I first came to Japan, which is 22 years ago now, um, I hitchhiked across the country. I did it with a friend and we kind of didn't know what we were doing. So we, we just hitchhiked like idiots. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was kind of interesting. But I think that that impulse to explore has been there since, you know, day one. And around 2010, I was invited to Koyasan. And um, that was kind of an eye-opening experience. I didn't know anything about Koyasan. I had never heard of it. I went there on kind of like a little retreat for three nights. And Koyasan is one of the big temple complexes that's at the heart of the Kumanokoro down in, is it is it Wakayama Prefecture? It's, yeah, Wakayama, Nara, sort of right on the, the borders down there. But yeah, it's basically right in the heart of the key Hanto, the key peninsula. And, um, I you know, I went there and that kind of really opened my eyes as to, in terms of, extremely dense and culturally uh historically rich natural environments it wasn't just about the temples and the density of temples and stuff mm. like that but it was really about the air and the water the vegetables that i was being served the moss the moss absolutely the moss is amazing so it was kind of all that sort of got me thinking like oh well this is interesting and kind of put up my my little antenna <laughs> Um, but it really wasn't until 2013 when I was invited by kind of a mentor and dear friend, this guy, John McBride, who he has a 40 year history with Japan and he has walked everything, you know, multiple times. And he said, Hey, I'm starting to organize these tours around the Kumano Kodo, which is the, you know, the, the paths in Wakayama and Mie and Nara. And he said, look, you know, why don't you come and join me and we can, we can go explore a few. So I went with John and we did the Nakahechi and we did the Kohechi. So basically from Tanabe to Hongu, Hongu to Nachi, and then basically like from Nachi up to Koyasan. That was really, really um, eye-opening. I mean, it was just astounding that, oh, there, there's this kind of rigorous physical activity combined with a deep cultural history and this kind of human geography of these places. And you're walking through working villages, you're walking past working farmers, and you're able to communicate with these people. So how did that experience transform into your first big walk? 
Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I was doing these walks with John and then I was like, wow, this is really fun. And, um, I started inviting basically writers and photographers and entrepreneurs from all over the world to just come and join me for fun. Like, Hey, let's do this. We'll walk for a few days. And people were really up for it. It's a unique experience because you say you do four, four days of walking together. You're, you're going to bathe together like three or four times, you know? And it's like, for most of these people coming from around the world, they've never bathed with anyone before, but the way a lot of these inns and Minshku and, you know, Yokan and whatever are set up is that it's all communal bathing and people are, sort of like freaked out but then like with by day two they're super into it so you find that these walks help you to build a very intimate connection with the people you invite to join you well it, yeah i mean it just becomes like very fraternal and open you know and i think they're you know i've had people say to me after a few days like this is the most comfortable i've ever been with my body ever in my life um but then the more i did those walks the more i realized like oh man it would be really good to just somehow capture this, you know, like we're doing these walks, we're having amazing conversations and then it all just dissipates. And so in 2016, uh, this would have been like my first quote unquote long walk, which was like eight days. It was like, Oh my God, eight days. Wow, how, how, how are we going to do this? Eight whole days. And, uh, Dan Rubin came over, uh, he's a photographer and basically Dan and I, uh, we're going to walk these eight days, photograph the heck out of it. And then we were, we were hiding in basically a farmhouse in Gifu. Uh, and so we, we did that and we hid and we kind of put together a book and then that like all, all these book projects, they end up dragging on a little bit longer. Hmm. We want to make it a little more complicated and we just sort of really leaned into it. And then that became the book, uh, Koya bound. And I was able to collaborate like Leica was a sponsor for it. We launched in the Leica gallery in Ginza, you know, and that was, and, and the first object out of a walk, you know, and it felt like, oh, this works and this is kind of interesting. And, you know, this is a lot of fun to work on. So that sort of seeded the idea of longer walks and sort of collaborative walks. But then it wasn't until 2019 that then I really went out on what I would consider my first super big walk, which was the Nakasendo plus a bunch of Kumano Kodo and Iseji and all that stuff. The first real mega walk. It's interesting that you attribute so much of your passion for walking to John McBride because you seem to follow in a lineage of writers who've walked Japan over the years. The book that really comes to mind is Alan Booth's The Roads to Sata, where he walks the length of the country from the north to the south. What do you think is the enduring appeal of exploring Japan on foot? Well, I don't know if it's unique to Japan. I mean, I think people like walking, you know, everywhere. Walking is the best way to experience a place if you have the time, right? I mean, the only reason why people don't do more walking is because usually because of the grind, you've got six days, you've got three days or whatever, you know. So walking is what you do if you have essentially endless time. You know, and I think if you have a connection to a country and you've invested in the language and you know you just want to get more of an intimate understanding of the texture of the place walking is 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 it walking is just the way you're gonna you're gonna you are gonna know it better than anywhere else and this is why i i have these kind of strict walk rules sometimes for some of my walks you know like when i did the nakasendo and the tokaido i had a rule that i was not allowed to skip any parts mm. of it a lot of folks will say, oh yeah, I walked the Nakasendo, but all they did was like Tsumago to Magome, right? And these are two of the main post towns on the Nakasendo, the kind of real landmark places to visit. Exactly. Like basically 
super well-maintained Disneyland-esque style mm. post-town bits, which are, are fascinating, right? They're, they're wonderful. I'm, so, I'm glad they're there, but you're not really walking the Nakasendo. And for me, one of the interesting qualities of doing the full walk is it forces you to contend with the messier bits. I'm really interested in how the cultural geography is manifesting today and how a road that's 400 years old was transformed into a contemporary road and what, and what happens in between post towns now that essentially have no purpose. You know, that's when you get the pachinko parlor strips and you get the weird suburban sprawl strips and you get the keba, you know, horse racing, you know, bits and stuff like that. And you see a bunch of drunk guys at nine in the morning in certain areas of like Aichi or whatever. Um, but I think it's really important to walk past, say hello, chat with these people, you know, and feel that, quality of japan and feel how japan is contending with whatever that is it's not meant to be like a romanticization of the country going on these big walks there are parts that are beautiful and you, you know you're in the woods and it's amazing and you know you find an old shrine and it's you know it's still being maintained in this kind of really beautiful way respectful way but also you know walking past 10 hours of pachinko parlors is like <laughs> That's its own thing that you have to recognize as part of Japan. That's what doing those parts of those walks gets me. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And I get a kick out of it. I think it's very fascinating. The crucial role that boredom plays in Craig's walks after this short break. Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market-leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress-free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specialises in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Could you take us inside one of your walks? You know, what's it actually like on the road when you've got a thousand kilometers ahead of you do you have a set objective every day or an idea of what you're hoping to discover or is it much more freeform than that yeah i mean i'm i'm very preparatory for these walks so like i book all of my hotels i book all the inns i book everything before i leave hmm. i don't want to think about any of that on the road so every day i mean the main goal is to just like get to that next place and sometimes it can be 15 kilometers sometimes it's 25 sometimes it's 46 i think i had a 50 kilometer day once That's you know and long. part of it is it, yeah crazy really too long too long too long but i think the best is like 15 to 20 mm. 15 to 20 lets you go really slowly and it lets you dip into anything and have as many conversations as you want along the way 50 you can't stop you're just walking from you know 
six in the morning until like eight at night. But for the most part, you know, I run these pop-up newsletters on the walks. And so every night I know I'm going to be writing something. So I'm sort of in this mindset of just, you know, paying attention, Mm. you know, what, what, what are interesting details that I can, I can pull forward and, and write about at the end of the day. And if you're just alive and looking and, you know, there are so many stories every day to be found and to be delighted by, and you can pop into, you know, uh, barbershops and kisaten and, you know, little yoshokuya and uh, whatever you can go in anywhere and say hello to anyone. And there's a story there to be pulled out and to be written about and to be delighted by. That is really the main focus. It's, it's being present. It's connecting with the folks along the way. It's trying to cast really a gentle eye on everything. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very, very self-aware, both how my mind is reacting to everything and then also how I'm writing about it. Not, to ever other anyone mm. i want to you know contend with these people on as natural and organic a level as possible and i could be in japan i could be in north carolina i could be in egypt or whatever and i wanted to all feel on the same level of contention you know where I, where it's not look at this strange person look at this strange it's not about that it's really about there's a humanity that you know the great gift of walking is you can you can experience it slowly you know, I finish these days and I just feel like exhausted to the core, to my bones, man. <laughs> like just, just physically and mentally when I turn out the light at night, I am just done, but it's a doneness that feels so full hmm. and so rich and like, oh, you know, we lived today. Yeah. It sounds like a very contented experience being on the road, but I am curious about what actually goes through your head as you walk, because, you know, I think when someone thinks of, oh, it's, you're doing a thousand kilometer walk, the first thing that comes to mind is the physical nature of it. Oh, you've got to do a thousand kilometers of walking and however many, a million steps or however many it is to, to achieve that. But I think when you think about longer term projects like this, longer term physical projects, it's always a endurance is a mental game too. You know, I know you've written about your experience of boredom on the road as well. How does boredom factor into the way that you walk and that you examine and appreciate your surroundings? Oh, it's critical. Boredom is everything, man. I mean, I think our loss of boredom in contemporary society is like one of the greatest weird um, ambient losses that, you know, it's it's sort of one of these things that it's very hard to quantify the value of it. And, you know, we've lost it so completely and totally uh, that we very rarely have moments to even re-experience it, you know, unless, unless you do it intentionally. And so for me, yeah, the boredom of these walks is, is sort of, I would say, you know, 50% of the value of it, you know, is, is putting, forcing yourself into a place where you're not teleporting mentally, you know, you just have to be there and you have to recognize like, oh my God, I have these thoughts, you know, and, and, and it's been, uh, you know, extremely therapeutic. You know, it's like, it's a form of therapy for sure. Hmm. And certainly for me, it was intentionally or not subconsciously, perhaps was a way to force myself to just rethink through things like, like childhood, for example, like a lot of, a lot of what I think about when I'm on the big walks is growing up, you know, and I grew up in this kind of weird town that was kind of a mess and, uh, you know, I didn't have any siblings. I'm adopted, you know, and my best friend from elementary school and I were essentially brothers. And I just think a lot about what we used to do and where we used to play. And for me, that's, I found that to be really valuable because this friend of mine, uh, he was murdered actually right after we graduated. So this guy, you know, this kid that 
add, I mean, I grew up in this place that this was like not uncommon. Folks going to jail, folks getting murdered, people carrying guns. You know, it was kind of a weird, a weird place. And, but this guy, this kid that I, it was essentially a brother to me and, um, who carried around with him half of my childhood experience, you know? And when you're 17 and someone gets murdered, um, you don't, I don't think you understand the value of that loss. And so it wasn't really until I started doing these big walks and I started reflecting more on like what it was that we were doing as children and what that experience was and how difficult it was in a lot of ways and how we were there to kind of support each other. And then thinking about, Oh my God, like it would be so amazing to be able to call this guy right now and just say, tell me what you remember. Mm -hmm. What, what what do you remember? So it's become this, you know, in, in that sense, when I'm, when I'm reflecting back on those moments, I'm kind of doing it in the memory of this guy. And this is why I don't allow myself to use the internet or listen to podcasts or, you know, use social media when I'm doing these big walks, because as soon as you find your mind going into this kind of like frictive, less comfortable place, like you may think about what could I have done to help this guy? You'll reach for your phone. You'll reach for Twitter. You'll go on Instagram. You'll, you know, look at TikTok or whatever the heck you do. The, the easy way out. You'll teleport away, right? You'll get out of, you'll get out of that place. But when you're on a big walk, and what's nice about walking is that you're doing something. So it's not like you're just sitting and you're trying to be quiet. You're moving. You feel like you're accomplishing something. You're, 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 you're being useful. You're using legs. You're burning calories. It's good. It feels good. Like the, we are programmed, I think, genetically to the more we walk, the better we feel. And then when you have that white space, that blank space, that boredom to then butt up against these things that may have happened a long time ago or that are happening right now, it allows for this kind of perfect problem solving space. There's nothing new about what I'm saying. You know, I mean, philosophers and scientists and mathematicians and artists and have always talked about solving stuff while walking, but to do it kind of on this slightly more radical level of instead of just, Oh, after lunch, I take a walk to go, I'm going to walk for 40 days <laughs> nonstop. You know, I mean, there's a reason that's biblical, yeah, biblical. <laughs> because like you, you get, you get insights, you know, you, you understand yourself, the world, uh, you know, your psyche a little bit better if you do it in the, in the properly bored way. When you feel yourself feeling bored and you, you know, you have this conception of it, which is not necessarily a negative thing to be bored how do you react to your own feeling of boredom as as you come across it well i i I did a 10-day vipassana retreat uh, a few years ago and that was i think the best training for this that i could have had this is one of those super low stimulus silent meditation style retreats exactly like having done that you know like a day of walking is pretty easy you're stimulated i can talk to people you know the boredom is pretty is pretty low grade boredom in in the grand scheme of boredoms so you know it's yeah, you just kind of lean into it but you know you do you do go a little bit nuts <laughs> kind of go oh my god but but you know it's a good forcing function to connect with people too because you're like ah, oh, i just need stimulation let me go into this random tatami shop hey tatami people and they're like who are what why are you here uh, i'm just i'm walking i walked all the way from tokyo tell me your ways <laughs> yeah. well the great thing about being in the middle of a big walk is you go i walked from tokyo and you know at first people are like nobody believes you or they go, oh, your Japanese isn't good enough. You're, you you meant you took the train from Tokyo. 
And you go, no, I walked. I walked. It's been 23 days. It's been, you know, 800 kilometers or whatever. Like, uh, I've, and then, and then they kind of like it, they fall over. And then, you know, that's, that's also like such a great part of the fun. It's part of the fun, but it's also like they treat you differently, not just because you're a foreigner, but because you're doing this crazy thing. Mm. And, oh, that's a high signal of an interesting human being. So let me engage with you a little bit more. So mm. it's, a, it's a good opener. As well as walking some of Japan's better-known walking routes, you've also made a project out of going to some of the country's lesser-known areas. I'm thinking specifically of the 10 quote-unquote boring cities walk you did at the end of 2021. How have these walks helped shape your understanding of Japan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just given me a fuller fuller view of things. It's definitely made me uh, hopeful in terms of seeing the social contract play out um, outside of a, a like a metropolis context. So on the walk I did in November, December, I went to 10 deliberately kind of like flyover midsize, kind of neither here nor there cities. Mm. And uh, the point was to spend three nights, four days sort of in each of these, you know, places you would never normally choose to go to for the most part. So going to these places where some of them were fairly poor, um, you know, and certainly depopulating, you know, shops are closing. They're very shutter guy style, like all the shutters are closed on the main streets. Mm-hmm. Going to these towns and talking with some of the folks there takes this idea of depopulation out of the realm of theory. And, it, you know, it puts it into praxis and it puts it into like what what materially is happening in terms of policy on the ground in these places and how is that changing? And so then I realized there's some cities I was going to that I was like, wow, this doesn't feel like a hundred thousand person city. And I realized what, what had happened. I started looking stuff up a little more closely and over the last decade, a lot of townships have all consolidated. Mm. So what was normally four towns of like 30,000 people you know, is now one town of 90,000 people. With four times the area so that everyone is much further spread apart. Exactly. So you could read that, but then to actually go to these places and experience that and see how that's manifesting in terms of whether or not it's thriving, you know? And so like Onomichi is an interesting example of a town that's massively depopulating. If you look at the the population over the last 20 years, but in the last 10 years, because of this combination of depopulation uh, Akia, you know, open shops and, and homes and stuff like that. Um, there's this, this hippie contingency that has kind of moved into Onomichi mm. and there are all these like little roasteries and vegan, you know, kind of organic, you know, Teishoku places and even like super fancy boutique hotels and stuff that are popping up because cost of doing that is essentially zero. And I have found that for the most part, people in the countryside in these depopulating areas are welcoming of folks coming in and, and, and sort of starting new and building mm. things there. Not, it's not like they're all curmudgeonly and like, get out of here. Um, for the most part, people are very, from what I've seen, supportive and um, excited about it. Yeah, I went to Onomichi in Golden Week as part of cycling the Shimanami Kaido, which is this amazing cycle route across the Seto Inland Sea uh, from Honshu to Shikoku. And it did seem like parts of Onomichi were thriving. There was kind of lots of shishi cafes and cycle rental shops. So after spending time in these 
tons of areas. What do you think is the difference between a place like that, like Onomichi, that has seemed to be able to reinvent itself and capture some more youthful energy and the cities of a similar size you come across that feel like they're on the downward slope? Yeah, I think accessibility is a big part of it. So if you look at Onomichi, it's super accessible. It's right between Kyoto and Hiroshima. You know, it's very close to Hiroshima. Um, also, like you said, it has a good hook, like the, the Shimanami Kaido. That's a big draw. I, I biked that as well uh, when I was there in, in December. And, you know, it was interesting just all the infrastructure that they have built up around it. Like, clearly, that's a that's a huge positive for, for the, uh, the economy there. So really, trains and stations and accessibility make or break a lot of these places. A counter example to Onomichi would be like Sakata, right? Sakata is Yamagata. Yamagata in general is just a tough place to get to. And so uh, Sakata felt to me like there's no hook. Uh, no strong hook, no obvious hook. Um, it does have Dewa Sanzan, but for most part, people that are doing Dewa Sanzan related stuff are going to Tsuroka. And the folks that I did see in Sakata, like I said, were mainly connected with Dewa Sanzan stuff, which has its own kind of touristic draw around Yamabushi and mountain asceticism and stuff like that, which is interesting. And the, I should say the, the positive of Yamagata being hard to get to is that there's an authenticity of untouchedness to mm. Dewa Sanzan. And certainly during the Meiji Restoration, those were the areas, you know, Kumano Koldo is special because it was hard to get to. Mm. Dewa Sanzan is special because it was out of the reach of the, the capital. So when they said, hey, no more Yamabushi stuff, no more, you got to split the Shinto and Buddhism stuff. These are places that didn't really do that. So you are left with this, this authentic, syncretic, you know, religious and spiritual uh, practices. And that's what makes them exciting. And I should also say the other thing, a lot of these towns that have really been hit hard are because of industrial, uh, you know, essentially offshoring industrial stuff. So logging, switching to China logging from J Japan logging or whatever, fishing industries moving out of Japan, you know, importing more cheaper fish from other other places. Um, so you get a lot of these kind of coastal towns and coastal coastal places that get that got smashed by that. Mm hmm. As you walk, you write and you photograph and you put out a near daily stream of media to your subscribers that captures many of these stories. You've written and self-published books about your experiences. You record audio snippets of your time on the road. You've basically created your own media ecosphere around you as you've gone that now sustains these projects. Was this always the intention with these walks? No, this is this is all improv jazz. All, <laughs> like no plan, no planning at all. And a lot of it is because I failed at engaging with the publishing industry in a way that I wanted to. You know, I spent years banging my head against the New York publishing industry and getting rejected to the point where I reached this boiling point of frustration. the The peak of that was like three, a little over three years ago. And that was when I, I said, all right, whenever I feel like this, I know the best thing to do is to brainstorm with a bunch of smart people. So I just got on a bunch of Zoom calls with folks from all over the world, like editors and uh, writers and designers and technologists and stuff, just folks I, I love and that I've been close with for years. Hmm. You know, we kind of realized like uh, you don't need these gatekeepers exclusively um, if you've built up a little bit of an audience. And, and by that point, I had had built up a small audience. And uh, I had just written an article for Wired about the state of digital books and kind of m membership programs and how they were kind of coming to their own. I thought, all right, well, let me try this. I know what I want to write about. Let me try doing this membership program. It'll formalize it. I just need someone to say, like, Craig, 
publish something every month. I need that. I'm, I'm otherwise my willpower wanes like pretty, pretty fast. And so, you know, three years ago when I launched the membership program, I didn't know what I was getting into and I did not have any plans for it. It was just kind of like an NPR style thing Mm. around the free stuff I was publishing, the newsletters I was publishing. And I realized that that formalization around, okay, here are a few hundred people, you know, in the beginning that support my work are, are paying me, um, a non-trivial amount of money is pretty good. They want to see more of what I've been, what I've been doing. They want to see me do it at kind of a higher level. And I just leaned into that, you know, in, in launching the membership program, it gave me the permission to then plan out that Nakasendo walk. Because up until that point, I think I'd been timid and I felt like, oh God, if I do like a month of walking, it'll be so navel gazing and I'm not, it's not a real job and I need the Atlantic to send me on that walk or it's not real and blah, 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 blah. All this like stupid crap that like bounces around in your head. And by launching the membership program, it flipped something for me. And I was like, okay, this is my job now. Let me freaking do this with a professional rigor uh, in a way that I hadn't been doing before. And I set out on that Nakasendo walk like a maniac, you know, just like, <laughs> I'm going to walk 30 kilometers a day and I'm going to write a big article for Wired. And I'm going to write a big article for Eater. And I'm going to, you know, like, I was just like, not, I'm going to do it no matter what. And, uh, and I'm going to publish something every day and I'm going to record some audio stuff and I'm going to do this experiment. And, um, it was just bonkers, you know? And, uh, I remember getting like five or six days into it. I was in, um, Karuizawa, and I was just looking at my feet and they were destroyed and my, my shoulders were like bleeding oh, and my feet <laughs> were all blisters every day. All I would, I would spend an hour, like just tending to my wounds, you know? And I was like, how am I going to do this for another four weeks, you know? And, uh, but I pushed through and, uh, it was because of that sense of permission and formality that the membership program kind of brought to me, man, all of that thinking back on it now, it sounds like, oh, this is all like really well planned out or whatever, but like it was not, it was such a mess. And I was in a, it was just freaking out the whole time. And is, is any of this going to work out? Is there value in anything I'm doing? And I finished that Nakasendo walk and I was just like, yeah, that was good. It's really only in the last 100 years or so that walking has lost its place as the main mode of transport here in Japan and around most of the rest of the world. And I know there are some pilgrimage routes like the Kumanokoro and the 88 Temple pilgrimage on Shikoku that are still pretty well maintained, but by and large, most travel here is now by train or by car. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the state of walking in Japan at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think walking in walking areas is really good. I think I think walking elsewhere can be really frustrating because you get this you get this problem in a lot of sort of towns outside of cities and even in cities too like the street maps were not designed for cars and then cars have been kind of overlaid on top of them and so there really isn't space to walk mm. you know so you're constantly fighting with cars and when you do these big walks across the country you feel the crappiness of cars cars suck cars suck they suck (laughs) that's the big caveat is there's a lot of bad walking because of cars and because of the historical size of of roads and streets the good walking stuff is really good you know i think like kumano kodo obviously is a good example of that 
the Iseiji is amazing. The Nakahechi Kohechi, Omine Okugaki Kaido. I, I was saying the um, Dewa Sanzan. There's the Rokujuri Goe Kaido up there, which is which is amazing. There's the Michinoku Coastal Trail. That's like thousands of kilometers mm-hmm. along the coast mm-hmm. in Tohoku. I haven't I haven't walked it. It looks pretty good. Um, there's a bunch of Shio Kaido stuff. There's the Hagi Olkan over in Yamaguchi. You know, you can walk from from coast to coast across Yamaguchi. Um, and for the most part, it's pretty good. You know, I, I think a lot of these routes are fairly well maintained. And I think in the last two decades, there's been a growing consciousness of the value of these places. Hmm. And to someone who's listening to this episode and now has itchy feet, maybe they're thinking they'd like to go out on a big walk or some similar form of exploration. Do you have any advice on how to get the most out of the experience? Yeah. I mean, if you've never done like a big walk before, I think definitely supported walks are the way to go. Like, so if you're in uh, Nepal, you know, in hindsight, the first real big walk walk I did was it was 2007 and I did the Annapurna base camp hike. You know, that's a tea house trek. Your, your, your equipment in, you know, is, min, is minimal. I would say focus on something like that. You know, do this, do something in the Swiss Alps, do something in, in Nepal or do something in Northern Thailand. You know, there's a lot of great kind of like supported hiking in Northern Thailand. Um, or, and then obviously in Japan, you know, if you, a lot of listeners out there are probably Japan based Kumano Kodo is really good. And actually right now with the limitations on tourists coming in it's one of the best times you can walk it because normally some of these inns you have to book a year in advance Mm. that's how quickly they book up do three or four days do it with a friend go offline be bored don't do any instagram you know really disconnect and set that intention if you can do that then yeah start to think about what, what happens if you do it on your own and do six days seven days eight days i think it's all about kind of building up you know these different um thresholds for for that experience and then you can start to venture into like carrying all your gear and do an Appalachian trail style stuff. But supported walks are great. Supported walks are great. Easiest way to get into it. Well, Craig Mott, thanks for taking the time. It's been really good fun talking to you. Thanks for having me. That was Craig Mott. To read more from him or to subscribe to his newsletters, check out the links I've put in the show notes. A full transcript of this episode is available now on the Japan Times website. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to this one, please spread the word. Share this episode with a friend you think might like it. And if you've suddenly got the bug to go walking, let us know where you're off to. Send us a voice note from the road. I'd love to hear it. We'll be back with a new episode next week. But until then, as always, Potsukare-sama.